Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Very happy to have you with us today, and we're happy to welcome a familiar voice back to the program. That would be Leslie Corbley. She's not only a Young Voices contributor, but also works with uh, Libertas Institute. And uh, Leslie, I'm probably probably leaving out some some details here. Tell us just a little bit about yourself. Thanks for having me on, Brian. I always appreciate the opportunity to hop on your program. So I'm the privacy policy analyst at the Libertas Institute, and my work focuses on uh, on passing reforms. Um, in the policy sphere that strengthen uh, privacy protections, uh, particularly anything that overlaps with, you know, individual rights and really securing those into the 21st century, given the vast array of ways in which our privacy can be compromised. Yeah, we have a lot of convenience in our lives, but uh, um, the in the internet age, privacy takes on a whole different flavor. And, you know, what's interesting to me, Leslie, is there, there still persists kind of a, an attitude that I think has been around historically, and that is, well, what do you need privacy for? Unless you have something to hide. And yet, uh, there, there's a very good reason why privacy matters. Maybe we could uh, talk a little bit about how lack of privacy leads to political abuses. I'm looking at an article that you penned for, uh, for uh, is it uh, International Policy Digest. Why is it yes. that privacy matters? Sure. So, so privacy is essentially, at its core, really just a boundary, right, between um, an individual or a group of individuals and any other person, or in this case, the state. So um, in China, the BBC recently released a report where they had obtained a cache of data that really shows the extent to which the state is able to surveil and monitor the public. Um, they're just their citizens. <laughs> it's really kind of terrifying. So things, simple things like listening to what will be deemed an illicit or illegal lecture um, can have vast and invasive consequences. You know, people can be arrested for that kind of thing over in China. And of course, they're particularly targeting the weaker Muslim population. So uh, obviously some, the way it usually would work is some communities are targeted more than others, right? Uh, depending on who's in power. But the, the basic concern being that when the state is able to surveil to, a, to such an extent, um, then obviously their ability to punish people who fail to conform to, in this case, uh, what amounts to vast abuses of civil liberties, um, then, you know, you, you have a pretty bad situation where um, people kind of lose their individual autonomy and their individual rights. I was stunned in your article to see that uh, even if you're even if you just say, well, if they're going to be monitoring, you know, my my digital devices, my smartphone, for instance, I just won't use my smartphone. But that can be a red flag. Oh, my word. Yes. So that's essentially a red flag on the theory that if you're not using your phone enough, um, you lose monetary credit. I, my assumption would be I don't think the from, I don't think the BBC report directly stated this. So, again, it's a little bit of a speculation, but um, I would speculate that that possibly is tied to their social credit score. Right. Which is likely tied to the use of your phone, or your device. So if you're not using that device then um, it would impact. Think of it as like if you stop paying your bills, I guess here you your credit score score be impacted. There's sort of a it's, it's correlated to your monetary credit, um, the extent to which you use your phone. I guess that means there is some kind of a minimum. So if you're not using it enough, 
I suppose that makes sense from the standpoint of them wanting to track you, right? Wow. <laughs> they can't really surveil you if you're failing to feed into the data into yeah. the data system. Well, it's it's the idea that I don't know. It's very Big Brotherish. I mean, it's it's the sense that look, uh, Big Brother hasn't been seeing your face very often. They're on your screens. What's up? And and the the idea that that uh, your money or your your access to your money is at risk. Now, my understanding is even as we speak, there have been runs on banks in China because of people's money being taken away from them in the name of well, your social credit score is low enough that uh, I guess that's fair game. And another aspect of privacy, you know, monetary privacy. Yes, and it's it's, it's interesting to see um, how you mentioned monetary privacy. That's something that's coming. Um, you can kind of look globally at how that's being used. Obviously, Justin Trudeau in Canada had cut off access to banking from, from certain protesters. Uh, you have that, that kind of situation. And then you also just have uh, the rise of, you can now see several um, multiple nations that are very large and powerful across the globe using uh, civil, I'm sorry, using terrorism, domestic terrorism specifically, as sort of a pretext under which they can um, begin to justify some of these invasive uh, practices uh, and as impetus to sort of violate individual rights saying, oh, well, we're, we're protecting against terrorism, right? Uh, that's becoming more widespread, right? I believe Justin Trudeau invoked that kind of rhetoric. Uh, China certainly hides behind that pretext. Um, and in some ways, I mean, the United States has an un unfortunate history of having done that in the, in the you know, for really since 9-11. So uh, this isn't really limited to just one nation as far as some of the the patterns, right? Obviously, the extent of what's happening in China and the specifics are not occurring um, in other other countries, but there's there's some patterns that seem to be emerging in multiple uh, contexts, which is very troubling. Leslie, I like how you established at the very beginning here that really this comes down to a matter of establishing boundaries. And and we see that uh, as far as government's concerned, those boundaries are always negotiable. Uh, for instance, you mentioned in your story, you know, the parents who voiced concerns at school board meetings. It turns out now they could be considered, you know, a threat of domestic extremism or something. There go those boundaries moving and, well, we have to spy on them because, you know, they might be up to something. What is being done? To, to help keep those boundaries in place or to reinforce those boundaries who are necessary to keep government from just running roughshod over the populace. I think this is where state reforms, it does sound like a long haul, obviously what happens at the federal level can't be um, stopped by state laws, but really uh, states need to start really reinforcing uh, proper warrant requirements, right? We've been letting this slip for decades at um, the judicial level. And I think also just the public hasn't been engaged in these issues of what constitutes a valid warrant, uh, what information should we be able to seek from that? You know, these kind of like basic questions of law that were very, very well understood, say, at the founding of the nation, or I think are much less understood now. And uh, the, the ways in which those protect against some of these, these problems aren't that, that through line is, not, I don't think, easy for the public to see, um, but it could really help. So, for instance, even something as simple as understanding how broad our current federal definition of domestic terrorism is, it is extremely broad and extremely and vague, and that lends it to, to being easily abused, right? Um, so there's that problem, and then also the problem of being able to obtain a lot of information with just one warrant. So 
I'm sure we talked about this before where, where, you know, you have these, for instance, geofence warrants where, okay, we're saying a crime was committed. We're going to draw a virtual boundary and we want all user data so we can sift through it to find a suspect. Right. Um, so that's becoming, these are now common practices and that's very troubling from a privacy standpoint. Um, and so really just the more the states and citizens engage on this issue, I think the better off we are as far as putting pressure both to help the problems not get worse, right? You don't, you kind of want to stop the bleeding, but also to hopefully um, in the future move, you know, the move the needle on the Overton window further towards, um, you know, protecting our privacy rights. Leslie, what would your advice be to people who tend to, to minimize this and say, well, but at least we're not China. I mean, come on, China's so much worse. <laughs> what would you say to them? We're certainly not China. There's no dispute about that. We're, we're not in that realm at all. Um, but that being said, we are continuing to condense power federally, which is very troubling, and that we have the technological, and increasingly our law enforcement is comfortable using this technological um, advances we've made. You know, So essentially, the, think of the infrastructure that China has to rely on in order to do this. It's not as though we don't have that capacity here. So it's, it's more of a, um, you know, you, you inch close to these things without realizing it. And it's not going to, you know, vast violations of civil liberties aren't going to look the exact same, right? Let's say hypothetically we're, we were to end up in something akin to a surveillance state. I don't think it's likely that, the, that that would look exactly the same in the U.S. as China, right? We have different cultures. We have different, uh, there's just a lot of differences. It's not going to completely mirror that. And so that's another thing I would, I think people need to understand is that just because something doesn't look exactly like the big, bad, scary thing you're not dealing with doesn't mean it's not a problem. Um, and also just because the problem isn't at a certain level of severity right now doesn't mean there's no ability for it to move in that direction. So yeah, I, I love how you put this in your article, to lose privacy is to lose freedom. And if people can make that connection, they can understand this is, this is why you don't want to give away too much of your privacy in the name of, but it'll make me feel safe because that, that freedom matters, even, even if the water's looking a little bit rough, right? Well, yes, it matters. And also, you know, um, you just don't once you open that that genie, you can't really put it back in the bottle. You know, once you use, lose your freedom, you may feel safe today, but you really don't have any guarantee that you're going to feel safe tomorrow, um, depending on where the tides blow. Right. So it's just, you're sort of almost sacred. It's almost like short term thinking. Right. And sort of I want I want to feel safe now. But what about in the long term? Right. So freedom obviously does come at a price you can you can feel but you can feel safe today and you don't know where your government's gonna land you tomorrow right welcome back to moving forward with young voices we are happy to welcome david mcgarry back to the show david for the sake of folks meeting you for the very first time tell us just a little bit about yourself yeah, thank you so much for uh, having me on. Like I said, my name is David McGarry. I come from Los Angeles, California, and I am a Consumer Choice Fellow with Young Voices. All right, now you've got a great topic here. I'm looking at an article on your Substack, uh, The Complexities of Tragedy and Good Governance. And wow, have we seen a lot of uh, calls for you know politicians to do something. We've had, a, we've had some very high-profile, um, really you know atrocious, 
acts, some mass murder, uh, the shooting in, in Buffalo, the shooting in Uvalde, the attack on a parade in Highland Park, Illinois, over the July 4th holiday. And it seems like there's a, there's a tendency to overreact. So, uh, where do we begin when we start trying to weigh the complexities of, of tragedy and, and have good governance without going overboard? Sure. Well, such calls by the uh, group of people who I call the something anything caucus just to just have some kind of action. Um, they're just fundamentally misguided for a few different reasons. Um, first of all, just adding statutes onto the books is not a responsible way to do government. It is not a responsible way to look at politics. Um, action for action's sake isn't something that generally works out well. Um, just just ask FDR and read the history of the Great Depression. And another thing that they, that these these folks get wrong is that they look straight to the federal government for solutions, and they specifically look for legislative solutions. And by assuming that such solutions are possible, if not probable, they completely take responsibility away from the other institutions of government and also of civil society that actually could make a difference in these cases. Yeah, it's. I, I get the idea that people are, are looking at something that shocks their senses, causes uh, grief and outrage, and, and um, I, I understand that they want to do something, but boy, does it not seem like politicians are just waiting there? I, I mean, maybe paper in hand, just, oh, okay, here we have the emotional leverage to finally move this forward. Um, talk to me about what was just passed and signed into law, uh, passed by Congress, signed into law by President Biden uh, to address uh, so-called gun violence. What what exactly did they accomplish? Sure. Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of federal spending for various mental health pro- programs, school programs, um, and then the the big the big headline uh, proposal in this in this new legislation is federal subsidization for state red flag laws. And red this this topic of red flag laws is really a it's a complicated subject, and there's a lot of people who have a whole spectrum of ideas about it. I'm probably a little bit more squishy on such on such laws than maybe a hardline libertarian would be. However, with that said, I think that I think that, like I said before, the run straight to the federal government, the demand for something, anything to be done, really runs around the actual places where we can make change. So there are very good cases to be made that this new law will actually have little to no effect maybe it will save maybe it will um prevent some some bad actors at the margins but it is definitely not a a uh, catch-all fix it is not a panacea it is not a solution for the main problems that are that are um causes of gun violence in our country or just violence in general I like the quote uh, you attribute to Jonah Goldberg about uh, making decisions when you're blindingly angry. And I have a theory here, and I mean, feel free to disagree with me on this, but I think when when something big happens, and I'm just going to take the Uvalde school shooting, since that one really uh, blew a lot of people's minds and just you know made people really upset. Politicians understand they have a very limited window of opportunity during which time people's emotions are are basically in charge. And after a short time, you know, a couple of weeks or so, people kind of come back down to earth. They think more rationally. But during that brief window, that's the time they want to try to get to the momentum moving to pass whatever legislation, regardless of whether it does what what it's advertised to do. It's just it's an it's a very opportunistic mindset to my thinking. 
I think you're 100% right. The incentives that are provided by politics um, encourage politicians to act now, 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 faster, faster, faster. But to be fair to the politicians, that's also just human nature, right? Any, any, anyone who's in a position of power is going to want to capitalize on a very distracted nation's attention while they have it for a brief amount of time. So I completely understand where politicians are coming from. But if Congress does insist on acting uh, in the wake of, of the, these types of really horrific, terrible tragedies, it should focus more on tightening up enforcement of existing federal laws. Because although it's a cliche, it's true. As I run through in my piece, offenders who either commit federal gun crimes or illegally attempt to get uh, guns for themselves or for other criminals aren't as a rule, being prosecuted, jailed, and and held accountable for what they've done. And no new law, uh, no matter how comprehensive, no matter how well-crafted, will do any good if it is not enforced. Yeah. Actually, you point out three quiet truths that distort the gun debate. Maybe we should walk through those. That uh, I think that was one, the third one, isn't it? That if you're not going to enforce the laws, you know, what good are they doing? What are, what are the other two quiet truths? Sure. So, so, the, the other one that uh, that really keeps ringing around in my head, um, I think all three are important, but the one that really keeps ringing around in my head is that there are actually three distinct, um, there are three distinct gun crises that we have in this country. And because of the horrific, um, almost to use, to use a religious terminology, almost satanic nature of these mass killings that we're seeing by true psychopaths, um, that is where the headlines are really focused. But at the same time, over half of homicide deaths every year are um, are come from suicides, and that's something is just that that is something that we're just not talking about. And then the other the other half, basically, of uh, homicide or I, I should say of, of gun deaths come from common criminals. It's it's gang members who are shooting each other. Um, the vast majority of people who are who are murdered in this country with guns are somehow involved or connected to some kind of illegal activity. And that is not um, that is not something that is just solved with some kind of assault weapons ban, which, as I also note in the piece, is completely ineffective. Yeah, it's I, I appreciate your analysis here. And uh, and I just I wish more people would consider it. Um, I'm I'm probably about as diehard of a uh, you know supporter of, of the right to keep and bear arms as a person is going to find. I, you know, I'm like, no, I don't even get upset when people propose gun control legislation because I already know I'm not going to obey it or I'm not going to go along with it. But. And the Supreme Court agrees with you, by the way. Yeah, I said that. That was kind of nice. It's good to get some validation. But there are a lot of people out there who are out there in a place where they really don't know for sure. The media certainly isn't helping as it fans the flames of outrage. So what would you recommend for people who want to get their minds around the issue? You've obviously taken a more in-depth look. Where can people start to, to get to the roots of the problem instead of just standing there swatting at symptoms? Sure. Um, well, I think just taking a moment to really consider these issues is is a good first step. And that's one reason why I didn't publish this piece until a couple weeks after the Uvalde shooting. And then I, as I noted at the bottom of my piece, I didn't comment on the Highland Park shooting because there simply wasn't enough credible information that was available at the time that I was publishing the piece. And I was not going to issue a hot take that could just turn out to be wrong. I think I think that um, the information we had at the time and subsequent information did validate what I, what I wrote. 
Um, but I'm not, I'm not in the business of giving hot and probably inaccurate and incendiary takes on such important and complex cultural issues. Um, with that said, a, a good place to a good place to start with these with these issues is the writings of certain people who really um, who really done the work and have put a, in a career of writing and thinking about them. I rely heavily on National Review's uh, Charles C. W. Cook and Kevin Williamson, um, who are just fantastic sources. Um, but also just in terms of going further into the solutions of this of this issue for just your regular person, get involved in your community. If you know someone in your if you know someone in your circle who seems to be having problems, who seems to be having mental health issues, get them the help they need. Maybe it will prevent a mass shooting. Maybe it won't. But you'll at least help that person, and that's how we make the world better. Again, we are visiting with Young Voices contributor David McGarry. Where can people follow you? Follow me on Twitter at David B. McGarry, and also subscribe to my uh, my Substack, which is the Thoughtful Spot. And welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We are happy to welcome Jeremy Horpidal. He is a Young Voices contributor as well as an associate professor of economics at the University of Central Arkansas. And uh, Jeremy, I'm sure I've only scratched the surface here, so if you wouldn't mind, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Brian. Um, yeah, like you said, I'm a, I'm a professor at the University of Central Arkansas. I'm also the director of our research center here called the Arkansas Center for Research and Economics. Um, and I do, so I teach, I do research, and I also do a lot of uh, public outreach, such as doing things like this, being on a lot of local TV, writing in the big newspaper in Arkansas. So doing public policy focused mostly on Arkansas, but like to talk about national policy too whenever whenever I think there's something interesting to talk about, like I think there really is with prices lately. Oh, yeah. We're, we're all feeling it, and I don't care what you're buying. The prices are higher, and people are complaining about it. And, of course, politicians are hearing this and thinking, well, we ought to do something. So, uh, I guess uh, oftentimes they'll want to turn to, why don't we institute some kind of price controls and give the people what they need? But you make a very strong case in your RealClearPolicy.com article that price controls really aren't the way to go if you're going to address soaring prices. Why is that? Yeah, that's right. It seems like a natural thing to do. If, if, you, if we feel the prices are too high, why not just pass a law saying they have to be lower? Uh, the big problem with that is this is going to create all sorts of other problems and doesn't fix the underlying reality. So one of the big issues that are or problems that are created by price controls are going to be shortages. So what would a shortage mean? Well, in the context of gasoline prices, if you were to pass a law saying that gasoline's got to go back down to 2 or $3 a gallon, uh, sounds nice, but what that means is that uh, there's a lot more people that want to buy it at that price, and we would see gas stations running out of gas. We'd see long lines, uh, as we saw in the 1970s when they tried this. They put price controls not on gasoline but on oil, and it resulted in that kind of effect. Um, so it's a it's a you know a thing which seems like if you haven't taken an economics course, uh, seems like a natural thing to try, right? Why not just pass a law? But the the reason this doesn't work is because that those prices we see convey some underlying reality reality about how much people want to buy, about how much of the good is available in the world. And when we try to institute a law which conflicts with the market price, uh, that's going to create all sorts of problems. It's, it's one of those things that economists, we love to point out that you know the prices reflect something that we can't really understand. And when we try to mess with that, uh, we're just going to create more problems without actually fixing the issue. I think that's possibly one of the most um 
enlightening and empowering economic things to learn is that uh, you know prices are where you really get that the the truest sense of what matters to people where where they're willing to allocate uh, their resources including their money um, we see this sometimes after disasters for instance when people are accused of price gouging well you know what they're charging for a you know a case of water they're charging so much more but uh, help help walk us through the process of why why is it that uh, prices go up when things are scarce and and why is it it's wrong to try to artificially manipulate those prices back down to something more reasonable. Yeah, I think you're right. This is a really important insight of economics, and it's a pretty simple one. <clears throat> but I think the the one of the challenges is people often ask me, well, why is this price going up? Why is that one going down? As an economist, I sometimes have to say, we don't actually know. The world is too complex to know, but following and tracking that price is the best way we can see what's going on. Uh, but we can have some ideas of what might be causing it, right? So, uh, because there is the invasion and war of Ukraine, right? And that's a major oil producing region of the world. Um, that's going to have some effect on it. Now, is it all because of that, right? Is it all because of the Putin price hike? Uh, I, as an economist, we just have to kind of guess, right? It's so complex. There are millions of buyers and sellers of this particular good. Uh, there's lots of other things changing. Um, but they, the prices, those are going to change that, right? So at a basic level, if a price is rising, uh, it's either because there is less supply available or there's more demand for it, or it could be some of both, right? But that's that's the basic reason the price might be going up. And again, to get back to the price control, if we're trying to put that in place, uh, well, what we're doing is now just denying the fact that either demand is increased or supply is decreased. And what we really need to do is try to, for example, one way to try to bring the price down would be to change something in policy that might create more supply, right? Uh, if there is more supply because, say, we remove some restrictions on drilling in the U.S., that could have some effect, right? So if we want to change policy to try to address the situation, trying to affect the price directly is going to create lots of problems. But if there are things you can do to either increase the supply or maybe there's something we can do to reduce demand, uh, that would be a way that policy could potentially uh, make things better. Uh, but often that's, that's actually really hard to do in the short run. Talk to me about what the Federal Reserve could do to get a handle on inflation. Yeah, so if we think about inflation generally, right, not just gas prices or groceries, but all prices have been going up uh, for about the past year and a half or so, uh, that's, that's going to be broadly not a result of any particular supplier demand changing, but that's a result of the money supply being increased, right? So when you mentioned the Federal Reserve, uh, they're the main institution in the United States that affects the supply of money. Um, and really, since the beginning of the pandemic in spring of 2020, uh, they went they underwent a, a process of dramatically increasing the supply of money uh, to try to offset lots of things that were happening you know, in early 2020. Uh, we're really now just starting to see the full effects of that playing out. Uh, so when we talk about, uh, you know, why is this why are all prices going up? The biggest impact is going to be that the supply of money has been increased. And so what the Federal Reserve can do now and what they're trying to do when you hear about the Fed raising interest rates, that's their attempt to uh, slow the growth of the money supply or possibly even decrease it. Right. So that's what they're that's what they're shooting for. Uh, it's, it's also very, you know, I think, as they would admit, it's it's really more of an art than a science. Uh, they, they don't have. They have maybe a little better data than we do, but really they're just they're just guessing. They're saying, well, inflation seems high. The economy outside of that, if you look at the labor market, things are roaring along. So we're going to try to restrict the supply of money to try to get inflation under control. Uh, but there's always the potential that this is going to create an economic downturn. Now, we haven't seen it yet in terms of looking at, say, the labor market or production 
Uh, those are still humming along pretty well, uh, but that's what the, that's kind of the the tightrope the Fed is trying to walk. We're trying to constrain money supply growth to bring down inflation, but not do it too much too quickly and create a recession. Although that is the likely result, and even they know that, uh, but. Uh, that that's kind of the the trade off they're trying to make right now. Jeremy, I know there's a, a fair amount of complexity to how the markets work, but I, I want to try to boil this down to to a very simple concept, and that is to to let the market um, basically operate without that manipulation or intervention on the part of either the Federal Reserve or uh, various you know price control policies passed by Congress or even state legislatures for that matter uh, what happens when we let the free market essentially be a free meaning uninterfered with market that's a great question uh, we don't really know because uh, you know for the past hundred years plus we have had a central bank which has been Manipulating the rate of interest, so and, you know they 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 have the best of intentions, although it's a very hard thing to do. Uh, we don't actually know what would say mortgage rates be if the Fed wasn't right now raising rates. Uh, would they be higher? Would they be lower? Uh, here's where we have to get and throw up our hands and say we don't actually know, right? Economists don't know what the right interest rate is. Uh, that interest rate would be determined by the number of people that wanted to buy houses, the, the amount of available credit. But what interest rates broadly in the economy would be without the Fed intervening would probably be different than what they are. Uh, but it's it's hard to predict exactly what they'll be. So if we talk about you know the interest rates the Fed directly controls, that's tied to all other interest rates, right? So that's tied to mortgage rates or rates on uh, car loans, all sorts of other loans you're going to get, uh, business loans. Those are all they're all tied together uh, because these are somewhat interchangeable uh, markets. So. Uh, we don't actually know what a free market in credit would look like right now. Um, and so we kind of live in the world where uh, the Fed is always intervening to try to to influence and set interest rates. And unfortunately, we don't we have to look back to history over a hundred years ago, and of course, the economy was so different from what it is now. It's really hard to say what a free market in in money and credit would look like. I like how you conclude in your article, inflation is the messenger. <laughs> it's, it's, it's trying to tell us something. What is the message it's trying to send to us? Yeah, that's right. So inflation is the messenger. You know, the expression is don't shoot the messenger. And what the messenger is trying to tell us is there is uh, a lot more uh, uh, effective demand in the economy right now than there otherwise would have been related to the supply of goods. So what does that mean? Well, why or why is that happening? Part of it is because there's been that increase in supply money I mentioned over the last two years. Part of it is because the federal government has just given people money through various rounds of stimulus checks. And now some states are talking about doing that too. There's about 14 states that are going to be doing this too, giving just giving people checks. Part of it is due to supply issues, such as those related to supply of oil. Um, but from, from all these things together, there's a lot more effective demand than there is supply of all the goods you want to buy. And the, the market's natural reaction and the right reaction to that is to drive prices up. Now, that's unfortunate that we have to live through that. Uh, but when you have a lot more demand in total from lots of reasons and supply is being restricted, prices are going to go up. And there's not a whole lot we can do about that, unfortunately. Okay. So much for an easy way out. But at least it's, <laughs> it's, it's a phase we're passing through. And I, I, is it safe to say it's not going to be this way forever? We hope not. Okay. <laughs> but yes, I think I think the, the actions the Federal Reserve are taking now 
will bring down the rate of inflation. Now, how long and how fast, that's hard to say, but at least they are, they're moving in the right direction to try to try to get us to a, a slightly better world. Okay, we are talking with Jeremy Horpidal. He is a Young Voices contributor and a professor of economics at the University of Central Arkansas. Where can people follow you on social media? Yeah, so I'm pretty active on Twitter. Uh, my, my handle is J-M-H-O-R-P, J-M-H-O-R-P. Welcome back. This is our fourth and final segment today of Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Roy Matthews back to the show. And Roy, for those who are meeting you for the first time, take just a moment. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, like you said, my name is Roy Matthews. I'm a public policy associate at the Alliance for Innovation and Infrastructure. That's AII in Washington, D.C., uh, where I focus on transportation, energy, infrastructure, and technology public policy issues. Boy, if you're focused on energy, I bet you've got your hands full with some of the things that are going on right now. Because I hear a lot of people talking about energy, primarily what they're paying for it at the pump, but uh, worldwide. It's a major concern. And you point out in an article that you wrote for National Review that uh, there's a, a liquefied natural gas plant shut down in Texas that uh, is going to add to already you know, difficult times for, for any energy consumers here in the U.S. What's the story behind that plant and, and behind what happened there? Well, the Freeport uh, liquefied natural gas or LNG plant um, is mainly an export terminal used to transport liquefied natural gas on tankers, mainly to Europe and China. And with uh, the invasion of Ukraine, Europe is really struggling to um, get more alternative sources of energy. Um, but the Freeport facility also provides 20% of U.S. Uh, liquefied natural gas processing capacity, meaning that attempts to refill U.S. stockpiles of liquefied natural gas and other types of natural gas are going to be extremely limited. Um, there is a pipeline explosion caused by overpressurization uh, inside the plant, and they originally projected it would only be shut down for a few weeks. But right now, they are trying to ramp up production again, and it will only partially be shut down until September. Dang. Now, I, I need a little bit of clarification. Maybe you can help me understand. Um, what What is the difference between LNG and, uh, for instance, the, the CNG that, that cars run on or uh, natural gas that we use in our homes? Is there a difference between those things? Do, or is, is there a, some, some different use for each, each one of those types of gas? Yes. So, liquefied natural gas is just ga natural gas that has been um, pressurized and has dropped to, I believe, uh, below, temperatures of below negative 200 degrees Fahrenheit, um, which liquefies it, it makes it much, much easier and cheaper for transportation. Um, so it's one way to transport natural gas over long distances on a cargo ship without having to worry about pressurizing tanks or gas leaks or anything like that. Okay. I, so it, it, what is it primarily used for? I mean, is it still just natural gas? It's just been reduced to a liquefied state and it'll uh, will yes, eventually be unpressurized? Can, so it's primarily used um, to heat or cool uh, homes in the U.S. Um, the Europeans are trying to use it as an electricity source, but it's mainly used for uh, heating and cooling uh, houses. So in the summertime, um, natural gas prices are, are um, excuse me, the demand for natural gas is usually higher because we're all trying to cool down in hot summers. But uh, in this upcoming winter, the reason this is so um, serious for colder states is because um, with less natural gas, 
available domestically, you're going to have uh, price spikes. And if we're all trying to stay warm in the middle of a cold winter to heat our homes, our heating bills are going to go up. Dang. I mean, it's it, things have been kind of challenging, but this this just adds another layer of difficulty. What about uh, the, the consumers in, for instance, uh, Europe or, or elsewhere? What does this mean for them? I think Europe is probably in a, in a worse position than we are. Yes. So, I believe I read Germany's, I believe, rationing um, hot water and other just basic necessities because they have actually had to reactivate several coal-fired power plants um, that go against um, their green energy goals. And the Netherlands has also pushed back um, their green energy transition plans because they are, they are also having to reactivate um, old coal-fired uh, power plants that were built in the 1970s. So they are in a much worse position than we are. Um, however, the U.S. does still lead the world in liquefied natural gas and oil and gas exports, which is good. However, the infrastructure that is essential for transporting these goods around the country for consumers to use and to port to be exported also faces some hurdles from inflation and labor shortages. I don't mean to sound, you know, um, I don't want to sound insensitive here, but it seems like uh, the, this, uh, these green initiatives and the desire to, to do more climate-friendly you know, approaches to energy uh, are coming at the cost of, of uh, well, prosperity and, and, and comfort. And I mean, it, it sounds like, like well, we're going we're gonna to do what's right by the environment, but in order to do so, we're going to all have to be a lot more uncomfortable. That's how it comes off. And I'm talking primarily about Europe. Um, is, am I wrong to characterize it like that? It just seems like they're, they're getting a pretty crappy deal. In, in return for you know green energy no I think you're I think you're spot on and you know I'm not anti clean energy or anti energy transition let's do that um, but we need to have adequate infrastructure and investments and technology to be able to simultaneous or transition without having to hurt people and without having to um, essentially deny people uh, heating oil for their homes um, and the infrastructure to deliver all these goods, um, also faces some um, uh, hurdles from inflation. Um, pipelines are normally constructed with um, steel, and steel mill products are up 74.4% um, from last year. And there's a specific labor shortage to oil and gas. Um, some experts think it's because of the sort of anti-oil and gas rhetoric coming from the administration, and people just don't want to work there anymore. Um, so that has also led many companies to sort of throw up their hands and say, well, if we don't have support and the public is against us, why? And it's too expensive to build these pipelines and why should we build them? No, I mean, I can understand where they're coming from. I mean, why, why would somebody want to invest in, you know, an industry that is, is clearly being phased out by the people in power? And yet, as you point out in your article, what we really need right now, more than anything, we need increased production. We need, we need more access to this. Tell me about where the U.S.'s uh, LNG supply is right now. It sounds like it's it's not in a very good place. So I believe the LNG and other um, natural, or excuse me, other distillates, meaning oil and fuel oil, the reserves are actually being tapped by the Biden administration to make up or to or to make up for gas shortages or to try to tone down um, gas prices. That works for maybe a couple of days, um, but it's not a permanent fix. And like you said, this is why we need investment and construction in these infrastructure projects. However, even if 
um, companies are to build these infrastructure projects, the lawsuits and the legal avenues that they have to navigate in order to complete a project are just massive. Um, there's the Mountain Valley Pipeline that runs from West Virginia to North Carolina. Um, it's 94% complete, and it was projected to cost $3.7 billion. Uh, however, due to lawsuits and permitting complications, it's now projected to cost up to $6.6 billion. Oof. And this company has been having to adjust and adapt to this new legal environment. Um, so, And even several pipelines in the Northeast were canceled uh, just this year after, I think, seven to ten years of um, legal action in the courts. Um, so when pipelines are canceled, it just means that you have to transport in natural gas via truck or rail, which is a lot more expensive, and that gets paid, cut, That cost gets pushed to the consumer. Yeah, and you point out here, this isn't just about uh, strictly you know heating homes. I mean, um, when when we see the these shortages in terms of uh, of uh, you know these petrochemicals and and other other uh, products, uh, where else is this going to hit us besides just you know staying warm during the winter? Well, mainly pet- well, mainly petrochemicals and plastics um, are the main feedstocks for natural gas. Not many people think that the the mattresses and the plastic bags or even um, some cosmetic products um, all contain feedstocks from oil or natural gas. So if the supply of oil and natural gas continues to be restricted, um, those costs, those production costs are going to be passed along to uh, I don't know your your wife's favorite um, foundation or my favorite Tempur-Pedic mattress. Um, so costs are going to be passed on to us either way, um, which is why we need this infrastructure and this investment so badly. So the the bad news, but it's still the truth that has to be faced is prices are are still going to be, or costs at least are still going to be higher for the foreseeable future. I have to ask you this, Roy: um, Does this look like a short-term or a long-term kind of thing that we're going to have to work through? This would be a longer-term issue, especially with the winter season coming up. Um, if we were to get past that, you still have to um, prepare for hurricane season, which is not something that most people think about since most of the LNG terminals um, that export to Europe and China, along with processing uh, U.S. LNG, are located along the Gulf of Mexico. So if we have a hurricane take another plan offline or lead to pipeline closures that's just going to spike price again uh, i don't want to speculate but that is a scenario that we could look for that we could um experience in the future so it's a much more longer term problem all right we are talking with roy matthews he is a young voices contributor as well as a public policy associate at the alliance for innovation and infrastructure tell everybody where they can find you online and where they can follow you on social media Sure. Uh, my Twitter is at your boy Roy with a Y for your boy and an underscore between the Y in boy and the and the R in Roy. Um, you can also visit AII.org to see policy blogs, papers and research projects that we're currently working on.